You are listening to Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement, with your host, Randy Sutton. Welcome to another episode of Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement, here on the America Out Loud Network. I'm your host, Randy Sutton. Well, if you listen to this show, you probably know everything that we're doing here is all concerning American law enforcement. We talk about all the topics that are uh, that are related to the American law enforcement officer. So, before we even get into that, there's one thing I want to ask of you. I'd ask that you support the Wounded Blue. The Wounded Blue is the national assistance and support organization for injured and disabled law enforcement officers. Go to thewoundedblue.org and check it out. Join, become a member of the Wounded Blue, whether you are a citizen, you're a police officer, or have been a police officer. And if you haven't seen our documentary film, it's on iTunes, it's on the Microsoft Store, it's uh, on Amazon.com. It's called The Wounded Blue, Service Sacrifice Betrayed. You will uh, be shocked at the way the American law enforcement community has, um, has uh, been treated uh, in many instances once they are severely injured or disabled. And now, let's take a walk into the briefing room, where I'm going to give you my view from the blue. Lots of stuff happening. Lots of stuff going on. And, you know, I'm going to start off this briefing room with a a kind of a, I'm not going to say a tribute, but an acknowledgement of some amazing, compassionate law enforcement policing. Um, It's it's about an incident that happened in Oklahoma. And uh, what it shows to me is it demonstrates the amazing amount of compassion and empathy that many in the law enforcement community possess. And um, so two years ago, Officer Jody Thompson um, was pulling into the parking lot of the Pateau Police Department in Oklahoma to drop off his partner, and he overheard a dispatch about a case of physical child abuse. Now, now get this. Thompson wasn't even on duty at the time, but he responded to the call and offered assistance. And even though he'd, he'd been on the department 16 years, he was previously an investigator for the district attorney's office where he handled dozens of abuse cases. So he thought that he would go lend his expertise. Well, it's amazing what happened. Um, Thompson arrived at the scene. He was stunned to see a severely underweight boy. His wrists were bound by belts with bruises along his back and a huge knot on his head. The eight-year-old had been submerged in a trash can full of cold water. He weighed just 61 pounds. And... um, the uh, Officer Thompson said that he did not have a spot on his body that didn't have a bruise or abrasion. It was the worst thing I've ever seen. Well, the uh, parents were arrested. Uh, they were both uh, sent to prison. And guess who adopted that little boy? Yeah, you got it, Officer Thompson. And not only did he adopt that little boy, the mother, who was... Um, who was sentenced to jail, was pregnant at the time of the arrest. And he adopted that baby as well. So this officer um, made an incredible difference in the lives of two children, two children who, who probably didn't stand a chance. And because of his compassion and empathy and willingness to uh, 
literally share his life with these children, um, he, uh, he adopted them. So I just wanted to say a big old shout out to Officer Thompson of the Pateau Police Department in Oklahoma. Um, you're a hell of a guy. So now let's get back to my normal railing at the insanity of, law, of the things facing the law enforcement officers in this country. There was a terrible, a terrible incident that took place in, involving a, um, a brand new police officer um, in the South Carolina, he was a South Carolina public safety officer in the Florence Regional Airport Police. He was, uh, he became the first officer killed in the line of duty in 2020. And, and here's the thing, this, this officer had never even been trained. He was, he was supposed to go to the police academy eight days after he was killed in the line of duty. He was killed while conducting a traffic stop on a driver who had just committed an armed robbery. But as a result of this, there are calls to change a 45-year-old state law that allows law enforcement agencies to put new recruits out on the street to work while they're waiting to attend an academy. So, in other words, departments hire these young men and women. They have a um, they have a uh, a date with the police academy, maybe months down the road. And because these departments are short-staffed, they send these young men and women out onto the street without any experience, without any training. What, I mean, that's crazy. And I, I knew it was being done in, in different places, but um, I, I swear, this, this young man didn't even get his career started and he was killed in the line of duty. It is absolutely patently unfair. It is, it is uh, uh, an incredible malfeasance to send a man or a woman out on the street with a gun and a badge and just say, here, boys and girls, uh, go be a cop. I, it, it is unconscionable. Now, I don't know, and, and we'll never know, if having been properly trained, if this officer would have survived that that shootout. But I can sure as hell tell you this, he sure as hell stood a better chance. So not and this is this is not just South Carolina. There's other states that allow this. And um, you know, if we're if we're gonna be asked to view ourselves as professionals and view police work as a profession. We better sure as hell step up here and train people before you put them out on the street. That's like saying, yeah, you know what, um, go pretend you're a cop. And this young man never even got a chance to get his career started. So, you know, to uh, the family of Officer Winkler who was killed, um, I send you my deepest condolences and... Um, and, and wish things had been different. But this is something that's really got to be addressed. Really got to be addressed. Let's move on. Let's move on to uh, Chicago. This is... <laughs> I can't help... I can't help myself up for laughing. This whole Jussie Smollett debacle 
where this actor, he was on some show called Empire, hit the news in a big way after he was allegedly, and I'm, I'm using that, that word uh, in the most important sense, allegedly was attacked on a street in Chicago by two white men wearing Make America Great Again hats, racially targeted and, and, and homophobic uh, remarks being made while he was beaten, and all because he was a gay black man. Well, the Chicago police pulled out all stops on this. Because, I mean, what a, what a crazy, um, horrible thing to, to have happen to, a, to an actor. But you know what? The investigation, well, these guys were really, really good investigators. And they did some amazing police work. And they found the two guys that allegedly committed this, this heinous crime. Problem was, they weren't white. They were black. And not only were they black, they were paid by Jesse Smollett to do it. They, he made the whole damn thing up. Oh, and you should have seen him. Oh, my God. Talk about acting. His acting was beautiful. He was so tearful. And he was so upset that, that he could be victimized like this. And it was nonsense. He made the whole damn thing up, set it up, so he could get some attention. Well, Chicago PD found out, and they charged him, as well they should. They spent tens of thousands of dollars, untold detectives' hours, investigating this case. And then when, it, when they, they arrested the, this guy, Smollett, um, Kim Fox, who was the district attorney over there, they call her the state's attorney, um, well, she's been at war with the Chicago police since she took office. She's uh, an activist prosecutor who basically doesn't cooperate with law enforcement. Um, uh, does, <coughs> does her very best to uh, drop charges whenever she can, diminish charges. And what does she do? She just completely dropped all of Smollett's charges. Well, it turns out that she was doing the bidding of a very close friend of Michelle Obama. Michelle Obama's chief of staff contacted Kim Fox on Smollett's behalf. And next thing you know, not only does he have no charges, they sealed his record. So they couldn't even, so, the, so that he didn't even have a record for the arrest. Well, even Rahm Emanuel, who was the mayor at the time, lost his mind on that one. And, uh, and, and Kim Fox started facing all kinds of heat. So much so that a, so much so that a special prosecutor was brought in. And, uh, and this week, that prosecutor indicted Jesse Smollett on a whole slew of charges. And now, Kim Fox who dropped Smollett's charges, now says she supports the new indictment. Of course, I think it might have something to do with that she herself is not only facing re-election, but also under investigation for her 
uh, role in this uh, in this mess. So uh, I'm happy to see that there was actually um, something done in this particular case with a, uh, the appointment of a special prosecutor, and I think that uh, that it's going to be very interesting to see if the next person sharing the cell next to Jesse Smollett is Kim Fox. Wouldn't that be justice? Yeah, I think it would. So, let's go to New York. I'm either either talking to, I'm either talking about New York or California or Chicago or New Jersey all the time. Well, the 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 mess with the quote justice reforms there just continues to explode with people being released and going out and committing crime after crime, and uh, now the Manhattan District Attorney announces that he may start stop charging some crimes due to the burden, bur- burdens that the DAs are subjected to because of these new justice reform, quote-unquote, laws. Uh, so th- this, this isn't justice reform. This is justice denied. Uh, they call it justice reform. It's a, it's, it's a debacle. Um, even, even de Blasio, who is partly responsible for this mess, this week had to, because of, of the incredible uptick in, in, uh, in crimes, has had to come out and say, yeah, maybe we didn't do the right thing. Maybe we screwed up. So at least de Blasio is facing the realities here and, and saying, yeah, this, is, we, this was a mess. Um, other people in the, uh, that were responsible, lawmakers, the governor, Cuomo, who is, the, the, who is really responsible for this, um, just refuses to, to acknowledge that they screwed this thing up. Well, meanwhile, there's blood on the streets. Crime is skyrocketing. And, uh, but don't worry about, about uh, the safety of the governor. Have no fear. He's being protected by the state police. Well, that's about all we have time for in this particular episode of the briefing room. And we've got a great guest waiting for us in the in the interview room. If you love coffee as much as I love coffee, in fact, even if you don't love it as much as I do, but you like it, Law Dog Coffee Company is the newest and the greatest coffee company to come along in a long time. Now all right, I admit I'm a little prejudiced because Law Dog Coffee is a major sponsor of the Wounded Blue. They actually donate 15% of their revenue to the Wounded Blue. And they are uh, a partner of, of the Wounded Blue in a lot of different ways. So this coffee company is, uh, is law enforcement uh, based. It supports law enforcement. But most importantly, the coffee is amazing. I I love it. I mean, it's uh, it's rich. It's uh, uh, organically grown. It's ethically grown in uh, in Costa Rica. It is uh, um, roasted by a family roasting company. It's been in business for ninety years. Uh, it's rich. It is delicious, and it gets delivered directly to your door. It's uh, subscription based. You can have one pound, two pound, twenty pounds, however much you want, delivered right to your door, and uh, and get a taste of this amazing coffee. So go to Law Dog Coffee 
LawDogCoffee.com. It was one word, LawDogCoffee.com. And, and also, by the way, they got some amazing gear, uh, T-shirts and mugs and hats and all kinds of stuff. Uh, really cool designs. So check it out, LawDogCoffee.com. Tastes so good, it ought to be illegal. I'm going to talk to you about a product that I never, ever would have thought I'd be talking about on this show. It's, um, it's a CBD product. And I have always been afraid of CBD, quite honestly. Um, although I, I keep on hearing from a lot of people that I know, uh, including a lot of injured officers, that they have been using different uh, CBD products and they love them. I mean, I, I keep on getting recommendations to try it. Uh, but I've always been afraid to try it. Uh, one of the reasons being because uh, I don't know what's in it. And I don't know, you know, if there's a THC content. THC, of course, being, you know, part of the marijuana um, plant and, uh, the you know, part that gets you high. So I've always stayed away from it. Well, my opinion has changed. It's, uh, I, was, I was contacted by a retired uh, NYPD police sergeant who was in the cannabis business, and uh, not the cannabis business, excuse me, the CBD business. And, um, and he's also a veteran, and he and I have the same kind of viewpoints uh, about law enforcement and about, um, you know, the, the current event stuff. And he told me a lot, he educated me, and, um, and then provided me with some different products. And I got to tell you, I was a little hesitant. Um, he and he informed me that the, the the difference, because you can get CBD anywhere, literally, you can go to the Seven Eleven and get it. But he told me that the difference is in who manufactures it, and what's in it, and how you know, how do you know what's in it, and the fact that there is no THC in this particular product. Um, he did his research. He found that this product was the best on the market. It's called Luxvite, L-U-X-V-I-T-E, and it's at luxviteCBD.com. Um, I've been using some of these products now, and i got to tell you, um, I'm, I'm sorry I waited personally, uh, but one of the things that's really cool about it is if you go to the website, you can actually look and get reports on what is in this. This is something that, that no other... Uh, no other CBD providers do. So anyway, uh, check out LuxviteCBD.com. That's Luxvite, L-U-X-V-I-T-E, CBD.com. And uh, check it out for yourself. And also, one of the cool things is that um, this company, is uh, uh, this, this sergeant's company, is uh, going to support the Wounded Blue, the National Assistance and Support Organization for Injured and Disabled Law Enforcement Officers. So... Check it out, LuxviteCBD.com. Spreading the outlaw truth from sea to shining sea. AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. The goal is to deliver a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world. To unite people from all backgrounds and beliefs in an effort to advance humanity. We are the vision of the voices. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio.
With me today in the interview room of Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement, is Steve Cohn. And Steve uh, has a very interesting position, and uh, this is a slightly different kind of interview than you normally hear on Blue Lives Radio, but it's a, it's a topic that's a little difficult to discuss, uh, and you'll know why in just a minute. Uh, Steve is the Chief of Communications, Marketing, and Philanthropy for an organization called Capital Caring, and it is a hospice, advanced illness, grief support, children's hospice, and veterans health uh, center. Um, Steve, thanks so much for being on Blue Lives Radio. Sure thing, Randy. So, you know, this is not essentially a law enforcement topic per se, but it touches everyone in our communities, including law enforcement. So uh, when, when I, I heard about what you guys do and the reach that you have, I thought it's something that I think would be of great interest to my listeners. So thanks a lot for, for taking the time to, uh, to come on the show. Sure thing. You know, Randy, um, regardless of whether one is in law enforcement or any other profession, every family at some point deals with a loved one who is critically ill uh, or or um, terminal. And um, that's why it's important to know uh, whether it's important to know what are the benefits and services that groups like us provide nationwide. Now you're a, you're a nonprofit organization. We uh, are. There are, there are for-profit hospice organizations and nonprofits. We're strictly nonprofit. We, um, as are the 69 sister organizations who are nonprofit across the country. Um, our services are much, uh, in some cases, much different than for-profit. Um, and I can certainly go into that, but yeah, I, I'm interested in, in, in knowing the difference. Well, for one thing, um, Medicare or Medicaid covers um, all hospice care um, to a certain point. Uh, and then after six months, it's reevaluated, and sometimes Medicare and Medicaid no longer will support uh, a patient. Um, typically, the for profits you know, won't take care of them after that, whereas not for profits do. So we turn no one away doesn't matter how long or how short their uh, stay is with us. Uh, and also significantly, because we're a nonprofit, if a, if a patient is not insured or underinsured, um, they could, or they're not a U.S. citizen, for instance, and they don't have Medicaid, Medicare, or another private insurance um, uh, offering, we turn no one away. Uh, so... No one has to pay for their care with us, and um, everyone is covered. You know, I, I I'm gonna I'm gonna share something with with my audience, and that is, um, I have a firsthand experience with with hospice. Uh, my my mother became terminally ill, and um, and made the decision that she wanted home hospice. And uh, I got to tell you, the the, the care that she received and the, um, the incredible compassion and empathy that, uh, that I saw demonstrated by hospice was nothing short of, uh, I'm going to say angelic. Um, so 
I, I'm a great believer in, in, you know, the, the, the message here. Explain, if you would, um, you know, your organization, how it, how it provides care and the areas that it provides care to. Well, Randy, your point about your mom reminds me that most Americans think that um, if a loved one has to go into hospice care, meaning they've been qualified by two doctors as having six months or less to live, that they have to take their loved one somewhere to a physical facility. That's only true 5% of the time. So like with your mom, 95% of our patients, we go to them uh, to provide care and support um, uh, through the end of their lives. Um, and um, so that can be a private residence. It can be an assisted living facility. It can be a nursing home. It can even be a hospital room because some people, when they're determined to be terminal, can't be moved out of the hospital because they're too fragile. In those situations, we turn the hospital room into a hospice or into a hospice room. And, and uh, what we're trying to do is, um, and do do, is um, make them as comfortable and painless as possible, as well as providing um, all kinds of ancillary care. I heard of a case today, one of our patients um, um, who was in a hospital uh, nearby here, she was close to dying and wanted to see her dog once before she passed away. And the hospital's initial reaction was no, we don't allow pets in here. But we actually, one of our staff talked to the hospital administration, got them to agree that if we got a vet certification that the dog was you know, healthy and so on, that they would let the dog come see the patient. We got the dog into her room. She, she was able to pet the dog and be with the dog. And 10 minutes after that, she died. Um, well, first of all, I mean, I, I, I'm so happy that she was able to do that. My first impression from that story is what kind of moronic <laughs> decision-making is that hospital making that would try and forbid uh, that right. simple request. Right, yeah. a dying patient, right, right. That, that's, the, that's, my, that's my first thought. But, uh, the, but other, the other, um, moving on from that, uh, because we deal with that kind of thing occasionally, not all the time. M most hospitals are very, very um, accommodating. Um, the, um, the other thing that we do, it's required by law that um, a hospice organization provide 13 months of bereavement counseling uh, to a patient's family. Um, but we go way beyond that. Um, we provide bereavement counseling for as long as the family would like it. It can be days, weeks, months, or years. That's point one. And point two, Randy, which is very important, because this is true of all nonprofit hospices across the country, I believe it's true. Um, and that is that we provide bereavement counseling to any member of our community, anyone, regardless of whether they've had a patient um, under our care or not. So they don't have to be a previous or current customer of ours, so to speak. They just have to live in our service area. And we offer bereavement counseling made up of a team of uh, grief counselors, social workers, and 
and um, um, chaplains. Well, that's, I, you know, when I was looking at, at your website and looking at all the services that you offer, um, I, I was pretty impressed. I, I didn't really expect to see everything that I saw there. And, yeah. uh, and, and that grief counseling, I mean, that can mean, that can mean the world to someone after they've just experienced the loss of a loved one. And we also have a special version of that for children who have lost um, a parent, a sibling, um, a close grandparent or a close friend. Um, and we, we actually have a summer camp we run once or twice every summer for kids, again, in the community. They don't have to have any relation, relationship with us in any other form. Um, so that's something else that nonprofits do that, that profit hospices don't. I'm not trying to disparage profit making, but there, there is a difference. Our mission is to care for everyone regardless of need, regardless of ability to pay. And we, we, uh, we go the extra step because we view that as a mission to all of the community members. In our case, in, in Washington, D.C., uh, most of Maryland and most of Virginia. Talk about the other services that you offer because, you know, I even saw uh, patient pet services. Right. Well, I mentioned the, 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 the woman who asked for her pet as her last request. Um, we have, um, in our case, we have about 850 employees and we have about the same number of volunteers. So we train volunteers, uh, by the way, of all ages, um, to do a number of tasks. And one of them um, is to, because we're, we're caring for most of our patients in their home or in their per whatever their permanent residence is, uh, we have volunteers that go in and make sure the pets, uh, which are sheriff's member of the family, are being taken care of. They're being fed, they're being groomed, they're being walked if they're dogs. Um, and that's all part of the service we provide for free. Um, and um, we also, do what we call rehoming pets. So when a patient dies, we discuss with the family member uh, what they'd like to do with a pet or pets. If they'd like to keep them or one of the family members takes them, absolutely fine. But if no one wants the pet, and oftentimes that's the case, we work with local animal shelters to try to find a home for the pet. So You know, I, I can't imagine the... Um... Uh, the relief that that gives to someone, especially as they know that they're nearing the end of their time, to know that that their pet will be taken care of. I mean, that that in and of itself is a is a huge um, uh, relief. I would I would I can just only imagine. It absolutely is. Another thing we train volunteers to do. Uh, we have specially specially trained volunteers who. Um, go into a home uh, where, um, or an apartment where the hospice patient is near death and has no one from their family or close friend present. So they're completely alone. And we call, we call this service, no one should die alone. Uh, and we, again, have great volunteers who um, specialize in, in going into the home, um, assuming the patient wants somebody there, and being with them till the very end. And wow, that's that's uh, that that's pretty amazing. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. so I mean, hospice care is is medical care. So you have well, it's it's more than medical. It's also social. So 
Um, sure, but where, where I was going with this is what does your medical staff consist of? Um, the medical staff are uh, all trained specifically in hospice and advanced illness care. Many of them are, are backgrounds are uh, in geriatric medicine or uh, internal medicine. Um, and a uh, hospice team um, is made up of, a, of an MD, a nurse practitioner, a social worker, and others, uh, a, you know, aides to uh, all of those people. Um, so that's a typical team. Um, and again, uh, what people don't understand is they wait to the last minute to seek hospice care for their loved one because they think it's expensive. No, it's free. They think you have to take them somewhere. No, we go to them 95% of the time. And so the, the average, uh, I, I believe the average number of days that a hospice patient um, is in hospice care or a patient is in hospice care is around 17 days. Whereas the benefit that every American has is six months minimum. And why that's important, Randy, is because the family, if they're not using our hospice teams, are trying themselves to deal with their loved one, get them to the emergency room multiple times, get them to different doctors, get them into the hospital. Um, and also just managing them in a very ill state, a seriously ill state, is tremendous amount of stress, absenteeism from work. Um, and uh, there's an estimate that the on an annual basis, people being absent from work because they're trying to deal with a critically ill loved one is $260 billion a year. Um, the point is that a lot of that doesn't have to happen. And in fact, what we hear very often, uh, the whole industry is, gee, if we had only known sooner that we could have put, you know, mom or dad or my spouse um, into your hospice care weeks and months ago. Yeah, yeah, I understand that. Now, uh, sometimes people don't want to admit that they're terminal. Um, we understand that. But still, law enforcement, other occupations, everybody should know that the minimum hospice benefit is six months. And then we also provide what's called palliative care, which is for people that aren't terminal but have serious illness or disability. And that care is also uh, free. Uh, and provided in their home, uh, or uh, sometimes at an outpatient clinic within a hospital. Um, and by the way, we have, we all hospice organizations have inpatient clinics as well. Um, but again, 5% of the patients wind up there. I, I you know, that's kind of interesting because when hospice care first, you know, uh, I mean, people used to just die in the hospital all the time. That's, that was the dying place. Right. And when hospice first started becoming a thing here in the United States, um, there was originally some reservations um, on a lot of people's part. They thought it was very radical. And now, um, you know, it's, it's, it's very, very mainstream. But I'm, I'm shocked at the at the statistic you just gave me, because I thought that there was a great deal more people going into a hospice, so to speak, 
as opposed to the the home care. Right, right. So, yeah, I mean, um, not that this number actually, it's it's hard to, you know, quanti- it's hard to think about this number, but our 70 um, nonprofits that we're, you know, that we're part of, um, I think we deal with about 50,000 hospice patients a day collectively and about 50,000 um, advanced illness care patients. Wow. So about 100,000 patients and families are being cared for by us on a daily basis. For free. Um, and, um, and, and, and no cost to them. And no cost to them. And because of the aging of the baby boomers, you know, this is, this is going to become uh, more and more prevalent uh, as a service. And we just want people to know what's available for them. So families don't have to go through weeks and months of trying to do it all themselves. Um, they just don't have to. Um, so anything that uh, your law enforcement listeners, listeners can do to make the point that hospice care is free, we go to the patient and their family 95% of the time and minimum hospice care is six months. Um, you know, we have patients, for instance, that have ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, who are under our care for years. Um, because even though they might be initially thought to have six months or less, many times um, patients, not just ALS patients, but other critically ill, terminally ill patients, um, don't die <laughs> right away. Yeah. Um, well, but, what, a, what an incredible amount of information. Uh, it, it, you know, the, the, the costs, the medical costs that, um, you know, that burden families and, and can literally destroy the estates of people who are dying, um, the, you're basically uh, providing everything for free and it's high quality care. We're not talking about, about, about you know, some, some substandard type of care. So it's very high quality care. We also, all of the hospices in, in the nation, whether they're nonprofit or for-profit, have 24-hour phone numbers that people can call. Um, we call ours 24-hour care line. It's on the top of our homepage, for instance. Um, and um, when they call that number, we, you know, we talk with them. We, have, we man the number 24 hours a day. Um, generally, it's a very highly qualified nurse on the other end. Uh, and we determine what the best course of action is. Uh, where to meet with the family uh, to get the enrollment process started. Um, and it's not a difficult process. Uh, so, again, the more people that know that, the better. We also, we, Capital Caring Health, are one of the three, I believe, one of the three largest children's hospice organizations in the nation. Um, and children's hospice is... Um, obviously very heart-wrenching, as is any end-of-life experience, but particularly for children. Again, specially trained nurses, doctors, and aides, social workers uh, who work with our children. Um, uh, But there is a big difference uh, in children's hospice because in adult hospice, we work to to give them a pain-free, comfortable environment 
Whereas with children, we're doing that, but we're also working with whatever their primary medical team is to try to also save them um, and cure whatever their issue is. Many kids have advanced cancer. Sometimes it goes into remission. Sometimes it never comes back. Uh, and we're working with their cancer medical team in a situation like that. Other uh, children that we get are generally very young infants that have terrible birth defects. Um, the good news on children is, I'm not sure about the national average, but here at Capital Caring Health, about 20 to 25% of the kids we save collectively with their primary medical team. And that's obviously very rewarding. Oh, I can imagine. Um, you know, I know you're not available in every, well, Capital Caring is, is affiliated with, with um, I think you said 79 other. Uh, no, actually 69 other nonprofits. 69, so total okay. Total 70. We're all part of an organization called uh, the National Partnership for Hospice Innovation. National Partnership for Hospice Innovation, short, shorthand for, uh, the shorthand is NPHI. So NPHI, National Partnership for Hospice Innovation is made up of 70 nonprofits, 69 just like us, for the most part, scattered across the country. Is there a, is there a central way to connect with, with them? Or, like, so, you know, if you I'm in- fall, I, the, the easiest thing to do, we are putting together a national referral number that's gonna be up and live March 1st. But um, you can also call any hospice organization. And for instance, if someone lives here in Northern Virginia, where our headquarters is, and says, well, I'm calling, but my, my mom, you know, is in Texas. What do I do? But I saw your number. And what we'll do is we'll connect them with one of our sister organizations if they're nearby where their mom is. And if not, we'll recommend some other hospice organization that we believe would do a great job. And I think most hospice organizations do exactly that. That's, so we'll refer people to another hospice organization if their loved one is not in our service area. Absolutely. Now, let me, let me ask you this. Um, law enforcement's role, um, you know, very often law enforcement officers are, are placed into situations that are not law enforcement related. It's not, it's not, you know, an enforcement issue, but they're called into all kinds of situations, medical issues, uh, um, you know, disputes where, where um, they could very easily um, be placed in a situation where having this knowledge and this uh, um, uh, information could be very, very beneficial to the people that they serve. Right. Um, so uh, I, that's, that's really why I wanted to, to have you on the show because I think it's a, it's a topic that is not normally really talked about. Uh, now, Randy, um, anybody on your listening area can get a hold of me through my email and um, I will send them a digital brochure discussing everything that you and I have talked about. Um, and I'm um, very happy to do that. If you want me to give people my email, I'm happy to do that. Uh, that would be fantastic. Yeah, um, so it's, yeah. um, it's S-Cone, C-O-N-E, as you know, because we know each other. Uh, Scone, S-Cone at capital, C-A-P-I-T-A-L, 
capitalcaring, C-A-R-I-N-G, dot org. Scone at capitalcaring, dot org. Well, I, it's, it's very generous of you to, to give that information out. Uh, sure thing. And, you know, um, we also it, accept donations because um, we're that was, that was going to be my next question. I'm glad you brought <laughs> because, that up. Because we're a nonprofit and we, we spend, in our situation here at Capital Caring Health, we spend between three to four million dollars a year uh, caring for patients that don't have insurance coverage. Um, or any other means of, of financial support. Um, some, uh, in, some, in some cases, it's, it's families with young children who are in our care because they're not covered by Medicare. Um, and by the time they reach us with their child in a terminal state and their stress so, so high, they've generally uh, run out of insurance. So that's one group that we deal with. But there are other people, uh, people that are immigrants, people that for one reason or another don't have any other kind of Medicare or Medicaid coverage. We pick up the tab 100% of the time. It, so where do, where do you get your funding from? I mean, is it, is it strictly donation? Well, for the, um, what we call the patient care fund, it is. Um, hospice care and advanced uh, illness care is covered by Medicare or Medicaid or private insurers. One of those three groups, most I, of the, the vast majority of the time. But again, not everyone is insured that way. Um, you know, we get plenty of people in their twenties and thirties, unfortunately that have stage four cancer. Uh, sometimes they have no insurance or they have, they no longer can be insured and we take care of them. They don't pay a penny. Is um, now I, I saw also on on your list of services um, a uh, reference to veterans. Yes, so that's an interesting one because when a veteran comes under our care, we have um, um, a veterans team here run by a retired lieutenant colonel in the Marine Corps in the Marine Corps, um, and one of the first things we do is we investigate to make sure that the veteran and their family are getting all of the monetary benefits that the, that veteran is entitled to. And believe it or not, you probably do believe it, about 80% of the time, we find that they're missing out on benefits they're entitled to. Uh, we also provide uh, either active duty and uh, volunteers who are active duty or retired military to to um, come uh, talk to and be with the hospice patient. Um, and um, again, volunteers who, um, as I indicated, have a military status of some kind. That's a very popular program. Both the patient and the, and the active duty or veteran um, volunteer love the experience. I personally have a friend whose husband was in um, special ops for many years. And he did a lot of you know, jumping out of planes. We actually had a nurse uh, in, in his care team that had been a paratrooper as well. And of course they hit it on famously. So um, we also do a special ceremony when the veteran dies at their bedside with the family. Um, so we take uh, veterans care very seriously. And by the way, all hospice organizations, at least all nonprofits do that. The, the profit-making ones may too, but I'm not sure about that. 
Let me ask you about the palliative care aspect. Yeah. Um, if someone is, is chronically ill, chronically in pain, and, and pain management is really their, their strongest need, is the only way to get into that, that um, service area to go in under hospice, or is there a specific palliative care um, avenue yeah, to approach um, that? It's a very good question because it can be confusing. Uh, palliative care here, and every so we're we're really an organization that provides two major services: hospice care and palliative care. If you go into palliative care, which you have to enroll in and have to be qualified to be in, that has nothing to do with hospice, meaning you're not considered a terminal patient. Um, you get the same high quality care, you get it at home or in, in, a, uh, uh, in a hospital or one of our inpatient facilities. Um, but, um, um, and many of these people are really ill, but they're not terminal. And that care, you know, can go on for quite a while, can go on for years. Um, and in some cases. So again, palliative care, what I call advanced illness care, because it's easier for consumers to remember, is a separate track. So um, that means the patient has not been designated by our medical director and another physician, usually their primary care physician, as being terminal. But is that is that also at, at no cost? Yes. So if 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 a say a um, a law enforcement officer who's been catastrophically injured and requires um, you know pain management to the degree that palliative care would be would be considered the the appropriate treatment, they can go into a facility or be treated at home. Under, under this? Yeah, and, and generally they will be covered by some form of insurance, but if they're not, uh, with a nonprofit, we, we pick up that path. Well, I, I got to tell you, Steve, this is, a, this is a really eye-opening conversation for me, and I think probably for my listeners as well. Um, I mean, you, you've, you know, nobody likes to talk about death. It's, it's one of no, those. No, especially American culture just isn't oriented at all that way. Um, and, um, uh, but we've made some progress. I mean, hospice, um, hospice is much better known today than ever before. But again, I'll get back to an earlier comment. We hate to hear the phrase, if we had only known sooner. Sure. So anything that your listening audience can do to mitigate that phrase for themselves, their own family, as well as others, the better. So once again, uh, for my listeners, if you have a question, uh, Steve has, has graciously given his contact information, scone, that's scone, at capitalcaring.org. Um, and then the website itself is capitalcaring.org. Right. Well, you know, Steve, thank you so much for taking the time to, um, to come on to the show. Randy, and, thanks for having me, because as you've said, um, this is not the typical topic you probably talk about. No, it, it surely isn't. Every family is affected um, by end-of-life care, uh, and they need to know that we're there for them, not just the last few days, but for weeks and months. Absolutely. In fact, my mother was um, under 
the hospice care for close to four months. Yeah. And uh, I, 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 w- I don't know what it would have done without him, quite honestly. Yeah. It, it would have been impossible. Yeah. So uh, anyway, uh, Steve, um, thanks again for being on Blue Lives Radio. And uh, I, I, will, uh, I will talk to you soon. All right, man. Thank you. Appreciate it. There's something very important I want you to do for me. If you've been listening to the Voice of American Law Enforcement for any time, you know that we are very dedicated to the law enforcement community here. I would like you to go to a website. It's www.thewoundedblue.org. I want you to read about how we at this organization are aiding injured and disabled law enforcement officers. If you are a law enforcement officer, and you have been injured or disabled, and you feel forgotten and alone, this is why we exist. We have a fully trained peer support team, all made of police officers who have been shot, stabbed, beaten, run over, screwed up, and screwed up. They know what you're going through, and we exist for you. You are the part of the Blue family, and you deserve to be treated with respect and dignity. Unfortunately, many Police agencies and cities do not treat their officers with respect and dignity when they are injured either physically or emotionally. So go to thewoundedblue.org. If you are a citizen and you want to help, please check out how you can join the Wounded Blue. And if you're a police officer or have been, exist for you. So check out thewoundedblue.org. Now, I would also urge you to see our film it is on Amazon, it is on iTunes, it's the Microsoft Store, it's pretty much every platform you can imagine. It's called The Wounded Blue, Service, Sacrifice, Betrayed. You would be shocked at how the men and women of this, you know, the law enforcement community in this country, many are being treated with such disrespect. Many people, most people, even cops, believe that if you are severely injured in the line of duty, you're going to be taken care of financially and emotionally. In many cases, that is not true. Please watch the film and help the Wounded Blue. End of Watch with Randy Sutton. Each week here on Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement, we pay our respects to the men and women of the law enforcement profession who have made the ultimate sacrifice and given their lives in the line of duty. Uh, This week I have two names to read. The first is police officer Matthew S. Von Seidowitz of the New York City Police Department. Police officer Matthew Von Seidowitz died as the result of cancer that he developed following his assignment to the search and recovery efforts at the World Trade Center following the 9-11 attacks. Police officer Matthew Von Seidowitz, uh, end of watch, Monday, January 27th, 2020. The second is Deputy Sheriff Donna Richardson Below of the DeSoto Parish Sheriff's Office in Louisiana. Deputy Sheriff Donna Richardson Below was killed in a vehicle crash on US 84 near Louisiana 3248 shortly before 8 a.m. An oncoming vehicle crossed the center line and struck her patrol car head-on, causing her to suffer fatal injuries. Deputy Richardson Below had served with the DeSoto Parish Sheriff's Office for 13 months previously served as a probation officer with the Louisiana Department of Corrections. Deputy Sheriff Donna Richardson below, DeSoto Parish Sheriff's Office, Louisiana. End of Watch Tuesday, February 11th, 2020.
May they rest in peace. Thanks so much for tuning in to this week's episode of Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement, where we bring you everything about law enforcement from a law enforcement perspective. A couple things. If you are on Facebook, please come to my page. That is the voice of American law enforcement and like it and follow it. Also, um, since you're going to be on Facebook anyway, go to the Wounded Blue. And uh, like that and follow that as well. If you're a Twitterer, I'm at LT Randy Sutton. And um, I think that about covers my social media presence. I do want to hear from you. I'd love to hear from people that have uh, ideas about stories, about things you want me to cover. I try to be as responsive as I can. And uh, anyway, I, I really do appreciate you tuning in to Blue Lives Radio. And you know, uh, we've been on the air a little over three years now. And I hear from a lot of my folks that listen to the show that it's, that it's meaningful to you. Thanks again for tuning in, and I'll see you next week.